0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Heather Noble. me Tracy Jones and this week the John Lewis partnership have said that from next year it will run its department stores and supermarket chain as one single business eliminating separate bosses for the two divisions and Tesco's chief executive Dave Lewis is to step down next year for personal reasons and also this week I learned that Levi's and Google are launching a new denim jacket that can answer phone calls and control music the prices start at $198 if you're interested and it works by inserting a small tab into the sleeve cuff, which allows you to leave your phone in your pocket and use the sleeve like a touchpad. And in amongst all of (laughs) that, (laughs) um, Alison Ensor of Foreman's came in and she came to talk to Heather about what's going on in the world of accountancy at the moment.
1: Joining us in the studio this afternoon is Alison Ensor from Foreman's in Wrexham. Hi Alison, thanks for joining
2: us. Lovely to be here again. Yeah, this is the second time you've been with us. You were with us back in July, yes, sort of mid-July, I think, has yeah. been uh, quite a lot of bits and pieces going on since then. So, what's so, been happening
1: in your world since uh, then?
2: Well, it's been accounts season, so uh, we've been doing a lot of accounts for different people, um, sole traders, etc., um, and um, taking on some more staff. So that's quite nice. Uh, a lot of uh, different things happening.
1: Right. Okay. And your clients, just so obviously, you're you're an accountant, so Your clients, they range from sole traders right the way through to large corporate organisations.
2: Where do you you sit in the market? Um, We very much specialise in micro-businesses. So, um, sole traders, your one-person limited companies, individuals. So, anybody who um, has bookkeeping, tax, anything like that, but is very much their own business um, and needs advice, it's very easy to... uh, have a lovely idea and, and be able to go out there and, and sell your product or service, but it's all the back office stuff that yeah. it also needs to. Yeah, absolutely. So if,
1: you, if somebody was listening and they're thinking of setting up their own business or um, going as a sole trader or they have recently done so, what are the sort
2: of things that they need to be uh, thinking of and making sure that they've got sort of sorted out? Okay, well they need to be looking at whether they're registered in the right places, so for example um, if you think you're going to have a large turnover you might want to be looking at VAT registration, you need to make sure that you're registered in the right ways with HMRC, so have you got a a limited company, in which case you're a director, are you paying yourself a salary, you might want to have a PAYE scheme, if you're a sole trader, have you registered for um, self-assessment? Um, got your UTR, your Unique Tax Reference, those sort of things. And what there's been
1: a lot of change in recent years around um, digital submission of information and having real-time accounts available, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what to what extent do people need to be doing record keeping? I guess we, I think we talked in the summer. You know, it's not about putting a load of paperwork in a carrier bag. That's not quite enough. Um,
2: So what level
1: of of records do people need to be keeping?
2: I mean, you can still keep paper records, and particularly for our type of client, they're small um, businesses, uh, or as I say, individuals. So yes, they can keep paper records, but HMRC are going towards the digital age um, quite slowly, but we're getting there. Um, Making Tax Digital for VAT came in um, in April of this year. Uh, initially it was supposed to be everybody um, but now um, they, they're bringing it in slowly so anybody under the VAT threshold where you've got to register at 85,000 um, turnover, if you're below that level you don't need to file your tax return under the uh, Making Tax Digital MTD. Um, you can do You can volunteer to do it, Mm -hmm. um, but you can continue using the old systems. If you're above those levels, you really should be now filing your VAT returns digitally. So you've got to keep things on computer, unfortunately. Um, I know quite a few of my clients don't like the computer, uh, but that's where we come in. Um, They can give us the information and we can get it into the right format and push it down that pipeline. Okay, and so presumably the best thing to do is to have that conversation
1: early on rather than you're you know you're nine months in and you've found that you're not keeping adequate records it's better to have the conversation up front find out from professionals like yourself what needs to be done to make sure that you're in the best position when it comes time to submit returns etc.
2: Yeah obviously if, if you have that conversation earlier rather than later um, you can make the right decisions as to what you need to do if you need to do something. Um, I quite often talk to people where they, they're worried about what they need to do and what they're already doing is okay yeah. so they don't need to have that extra stress while they're trying to um, run a business but yes the sooner you can get yourself organised and registered and know what you need to do going forward, the better.
1: Fantastic. Okay, right. So the one thing that everybody mentions is this whole self-assessment tax return deadline. And there are two key dates, aren't there? So there's there's the date by which your return, the the date to which your return applies, and then the date at which it needs
2: to be submitted. So what are the key dates that people need to be remembering for self-assessment? Right, the key dates are, we are looking at the moment at 2018-19 tax returns, And that runs from the 6th of April 2018 to the 5th of April 2019. Income tax is a a funny thing historically, Um, so it doesn't run to end of months. That return needs to be filed. If you're going to do it on paper, you've got a month left. Um, It's got to be filed by the 31st of October. However, if you're doing it online, you've got till the 31st of January. Don't leave it till the 31st of January is my advice um, because there will be a lot of people doing that. Uh, you need to get it done sooner rather than later.
1: Okay, so if you're doing the paper version, you really do need to pull your finger out and get it get it sorted.
2: You certainly do, yeah. um, but most people are filing online and if you're using an accountant, they'll have a system that will file yeah. online okay. as well. All right. Uh, and then in terms of any tax due, what are the key dates for that? Right, your actual tax due for that 18-19 tax year, so from 6th of April 2018 to the 5th of April 2019, you must have paid that tax by the 31st of January 2020. Now that sounds a long way away, but it isn't. isn't, So the sooner you know how much you need to pay, the sooner you can start putting those funds aside to actually pay it. So get your return done, know how much you need to pay and then start getting ready to pay it. It has to be with them by the 31st of January. If you don't pay it by the 31st of January, the HMRC will charge you interest. Um, Their interest rates are not extortionate, but you don't really want to be paying interest if you can avoid it. The big penalty is not filing on time because there's a 100 pound penalty. If you file on the 1st of February, it doesn't matter. That's a hundred pound fine. Yeah.
1: Okay. So those are those are the key dates that we need to be mindful of. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, now, one thing that I know that you do, uh, and this might be of interest to people who are already running a business, are thinking of running a business, uh, have been running a business for a long time and want to get out, or loads of different scenarios. You run some clinics locally in the Wrexham area don't you?
2: Yes we run some clinics at Business Wales um, which is in the centre of Wrexham, it's actually in the old Iceland building if anybody knows that one Um, and we're there um, every other Tuesday so we were there this week Um, and it's a free advice, people come along and we answer their queries, try and help them if we can. It's uh, a facility that's for Micro businesses that need an office need some help, um, and Business Wales will supply that. Okay, and and is that a drop-in clinic, or is it? Do you need to make appointments, or how? Um, Either, if 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 it's something specific and you want to talk to one of us, um, then by all means, give us a ring and make a specific appointment. I mean, you can always pop into our office anyway, Um, or just drop along if, if you're in in the area and you've got a query burning question on tax uh, come and see us we'll be there okay fantastic so could you just remind us where foreman's is based and what's the best way to make contact if people want to get in touch with you Foreman's um, is based on Grove Park Road um, next to College Cambria. And uh, we've got a couple of numbers so 01244625500 625 is, is the one number, and 01978 364 000 uh, is the other number. Um, if you just give us a call or literally just open the door, come in and we'll make a cup of coffee and have a chat.
1: Fantastic. And so you've got a Chester number and a Wrexham number, but they come through to the same.
2: Yes, we've only got the one office. Um, The Chester number is sort of a bit of a historical. We were in Chester originally. Um, We kept that number because a lot of people use it and a lot of our clients, you know, didn't want to learn a a new number. It made life easier for them.
1: Fantastic. Alison, thank you very much for joining us again. Can we ask you to flag up any key things that people need to be aware of in the coming months um, so that we can make sure that With the B word looming, if there's anything that we need to be all over, um, that we at least uh, mention it for our listeners or, if appropriate, get you in to help us through it. So thank you very much for joining me.
2: Thank you.
0: Other news in the business world today. One of my favourite places to look, as you know, is ONS, the Office for National Statistics. And yesterday they released a report called UK Business Activity, Size and Location 2019 full of all the good stuff. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, So some of the main points, I I, I won't read the whole thing, it's quite big, but I've picked out some of the interesting, I like to think, interesting main points. Well then they
1: will be interesting points.
0: So first of all a business is defined as, in this uh, context, as an enterprise and it's representing the businesses registered with HM Revenue and Customs for VAT and or PAYE, pay as you earn. So that's what we're talking about here. And the number of those types of businesses as of March 2019 in the UK increased to 2.72 million, which is a 1.8% increase from the same time last year. And um, again, a slight recovery from the minimal increase seen in 2017. So 2.72 million Registered businesses. And the number of companies and public corporations has continued to rise and represents 52.5% of total UK businesses, which has offset a gradual fall in sole proprietors and partnerships. So of the 1.97 million. Incorporated businesses, 45.7% are single employee limited companies. Like this. Me. Is, yeah. So, and it's sort of showing a, a bit of a trend. In um, between 2018 and 2019, 9,000 businesses moved from sole proprietor and partnership to incorporated business so you're one of those 9000 yeah. yeah however they did point out that there is a trend for businesses to go straight to limited status now so it, it used to be typically that you'd start up as sole trader or a partnership at first and then move through into incorporated limited company But uh, this report says that digital registration, formation agents and virtual offices are making the process of setting up a limited company easier. And hence, that's contributing to the trend and the growth and the number of um, limited companies. The largest industry group. Any guesses, Heather?
1: Oh, gosh. Um,
0: Well, I'm going to some sort of tech Yeah, professional, scientific and technical uh, make up 17.4% of all registered businesses in the UK, which account for 7.5% of the whole UK economy. And most of those are management consultants or computer consultants. But the largest growth in numbers is in construction, mainly construction of domestic businesses. Which has risen by 12,000 in the year from 2018 to 2019.
1: Is that because there was a big dip as part of the recession and now that's emerging? as we come out of the old recession there's
0: no explanation of that one but i imagine mm, yes mm, that, that's mm. part of it there, there was a dip in a lot of these figures beforehand and i think they're just starting it's the spike to spike again a yep. london is the region that remains the region with the largest number of businesses they've got 19.2% of the whole of the uk and all regions showed an increase in the numbers of registered businesses apart from the northwest and in mm. 2019 the northwest region saw only um, thousand businesses. Is that Northwest includes, UK includes yeah. so that includes Wales, North West, Northwest UK. Yeah. yeah. Um, and th- this finally one one bit of information I pulled out of it is that only two point two percent of all of those businesses have more than one site. So out of two point seven two million of VAT or PAYE registered businesses, only 60,000 have got more than one site. And those 60,000 businesses have got 522 sites, 522,000 sites between them. And of the businesses with one site, the largest number are the professional, scientific and technical, and the construction sectors. And the businesses with 20 or more sites are health and retail sectors.
1: Yeah, OK. That, that that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The, the the techie one is interesting because a lot of people work from home or can work remotely. So you'd think that would reduce the fact that they might have multiple sites because they could actually have one site and then have people working remotely.
0: And that, that is what they're saying is um, for the tech ones, which are mainly si- um, single employee companies in consultancy and computers. They're the ones with the... Most businesses with just one size.
1: Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry, I missed. Yeah, okay. Okay. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I, I've i got some slightly different um, things that have caught my eye. Um, first of all, Amazon, that well-known online retailer of everything, um, is, is, is testing in the USA, in LA, they're going to open some concept grocery stores. Uh, so they're going to trial whether or not the sort of Amazon Go, as they're calling it, format um, would work. So they're, they're testing it to see whether there's an appetite for... And I know that in the past, there was a time when you could buy an iceberg lettuce from Amazon... Really? Yeah, and have it delivered like next day. So I don't know, but I don't think you can do that now. Some of the more sort of perishable foods. So whether this oh, is... I think
0: they were testing the grocery deliveries um, yeah. down in the
1: southeast, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So we're, uh, probably with the whole idea of, you know, different distribution. But anyway, so it looks like they're going to test this out in the States. So I th- anything that gets tested in the States, you know... If it's successful, it's only going to be a matter of time before it's here in the UK. So I thought that was an interesting one. Um, Nestle and Pro- Nestle and Procter and Gamble, who are the, you know the same entity, have announced that they're going to fail to meet their go- their t- their goals for 2020 in terms of their supply chain um, deforestation targets. Uh, we were talking about supply chain uh, last week. Um, Nestle palm oil is a big thing for them. Um, and they say that their supply chain for palm oil is 90% free of deforestation, um, which is up 77% from earlier in the year, but they're still going to miss that that 100% aim. So um, one to watch there. And, you know, 2020 is like few months away <laughs> so close. you know close. yeah and and it's one of those dates isn't it that you know it sounded like a great goal oh yeah well by 2020 well hang on a minute it's it's now it's it, it used to look like it was a long way in the future but it, it, it really isn't and then finally this is one that kind of poses more questions than it answers an article that I noticed um, about the RNLI the Royal National Lifeboat Institute um, a charity Um, With all the GDPR legislation about people opting in to marketing campaigns, they have, and I don't know how this is legally allowed, but they have, instead of having opt-in marketing policy, they've reversed it and it's now got an opt-out. So you will automatically um, be contacted by them unless you say that they don't want to. They're talking about relying on a system called legitimate interest. So, if you have previously supported that charity, you presumably have a legitimate interest. Therefore, they are able to contact you. And the reason they've done this is because the whole opt-in thing has actually cost them millions of pounds. There's been a massive drop in the amount of revenue that they have generated because people were able to opt out. Um, So, I. I don't know if this is something that a lot of charities are going to be following suit with. I wonder if this is, you know, a test case in the making. But um, it was it was uh, there was an article in something called Third Force News, um, which you would as you might imagine is all about third sector. And um, yeah, one to watch. So if you're involved in a charity um, or involved in fundraising, um, I think that's of, of huge interest.
0: You're listening to The Business Community on Calon FM. And this week I've discovered an article in Management Today which was called A Reading List for Introverted Leaders. And it's it's a list made by a lady called Natasha Pilbrow, never heard of her before, um, but she's got a 10-year legal career and co-founded on-demand beauty platform Le Salon in 2015. Anyway, she's come up with quite an interesting list. She's a self-confessed introvert and says that reading has helped her to find a better work-life balance. And so some of the things that she's recommended, I've... I've already read myself and other things I, I want to explore further. So one that I have read is Daring Greatly by Brené Brown. I've, I've followed a lot of stuff that Brené Brown has done. Yeah. And uh, she's she's a good writer. She's a very good speaker. So if you do get an opportunity to hear her talk or, or watch one of her videos. she's TED Talks yeah, really, Brené really Brown's good. done. Mm-hmm. Um, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. We profiled Sheryl Sandberg several months ago and we talked about that. Um, and um, Natasha says here that... Uh, Sheryl Sandberg empowers female leaders to curate the life they want and to be great leaders at home and at work. She also mentions Grit by Angela Duckworth. I'm not familiar with this one, but she says Grit is about the qualities that lead to great achievements and is a nice reminder that passion and resilience really are so important. A huge part of business success is just knowing how to pick yourself back up oh that's so true that's isn't really it yeah point. one that i have read is quiet by susan kane again susan kane's a good speaker a uh, very good writer and um she says natasha says that uh, this book has helped her to feel more confident about her skill set and reminded her that one does not need to be an extrovert to be a good leader and then uh, her final book on the li- oh no two more books on the list um Is Checklist Manifesto from Atul Gawande, and it's about balancing home and professional life and uh, helped her to get better at juggling the two. I've not come across that one before, so I'm going to dig that one out and, and find out about that. The Checklist Manifesto's new to me. Then she's looking at podcasts. So, Drive from the Business of Fashion is a podcast if you want to get an insight into the fashion industry. Not something I would have considered before, but actually, after our profile researching the, the gentleman for our profile this afternoon, I might give it a listen. Mm-hmm. and Masters of Scale from Reed Hoffman, all about the highs, lows and adventures in building some of the world's best-known businesses. Not had a chance to listen to that one yet because I dedicated all of the spare time I had this week to listening to How to Fail podcast. And this is a lady called Elizabeth Day. She's a journalist and a writer, and she's got quite a, a list, a roll call of big names from popular culture that she's interviewed. And the premise of the show is that they come on and discuss their failures, which have led to their big, biggest successes. And I, I managed to listen to three interviews. Uh, the first one was Phoebe Wallabridge and it was her second interview, so... Phoebe is apparently a good friend of Elizabeth Day and she agreed to be her very first interviewee for the very first podcast. Just coincides with the fact that me and Heather went to see Fleabag last night. Yes, yes. (laughs) With Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And it it was a really good listen for an hour. Um, the, I followed that straight away with the interview with Nigel Slater, who I adore. Yeah, I think, th- and I, I liked him even more. He's mm-hmm. very, very good. And um, Deborah Francis White, um, she's the, uh, she's an author and also runs the Guilty Feminist podcast. Yep. Um, I, again, who is
1: also friends with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I'm not saying that there's <laughs>
0: they're all connected. Yeah, there. but but when when you've got those sorts of friends, why would you not ask absolutely them to be on your podcast? Mm-hmm. So. I really enjoyed them. I'm not so sure. Um, they weren't specific, say, business failures. They they were pe- perceptions of their own failings in certain ways. So Nigel Slater was um, a sense of failure as a friend because he wasn't very good at keeping in touch with people. And they had a really good discussion about that. And then his sense of failure with his career as a chef. Now, okay. you you'd think that, well surely he didn't fail in a career as a chef but actually it was something he didn't take to it although he expected to from the age of 16.
1: I suppose in the traditional sense of being a chef rather than being a food writer, a food writer. yeah okay.
0: And uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was talking all about things that she'd felt were failures on her part in the 12 months between her first interview and the second which saw the launch of series two of Fleabag and also um oh Killing Eve as well which was a phenomenal (gasps) success yeah but okay to me it wasn't a massive lesson in in sort of business failure, which it wasn't it wasn 't billed as being business failure, but it was really interesting insight into these people and how they did achieve their success, but how these people still had a sense that they 'd failed at something Why did Phoebe Wallabridge feel that
1: she had failed in some way failed in preparing?
0: one of the ones she mentioned was that she felt she 'd failed her family by not preparing them. For the success and how much they would be dragged into okay. her success, yeah. She said, and part of that was not wanting to say, "Oh, this is going to be big, folks. You get get prepared." Uh, but, but she said that once um, Fleabag became so popular, the attention on her family, and you know, people assuming that she'd written about her family and that the characters in Fleabag were her family.
1: Yeah. So her mother would then, <laughs> yeah, appear to be the, like the mother she's written about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she might not sister be sister and, yeah. and and all yeah. of
0: those though, those sorts of things she felt she she'd failed with so i really enjoyed it it's, she's got some great guests and they have they genuinely seem to have a very good time it's a little long so um i don't tend to do journeys over an hour and these were you know just on the hour mark so i did have to sit in my car for a bit a little bit longer than i would have done to listen to it but uh, it's well worth uh, catching up on so that's called how to fail if you're interested in live this is the big rage and all the thing now heather is live podcasts. so i think we should announce our tour dates soon oh yes oh yeah (laughs) but uh, elizabeth is going to be touring and um So from this Sunday, she's in Brighton and she's got some guests with her as well. She's got, um, let's have a look, Jamie Lang is with her on Sunday the 20th when she's in Bath. She's coming up to um, the Lowry in Salford. She's got Emma Barnett with her on the 23rd of October. Uh, She's in Belfast and Dublin and Gateshead and on the South Bank as well. So if you like that sort of thing and, and you're in that area, go and have a look at that. That's How to Fail by Elizabeth Day.
1: Well, my discovery isn't isn't quite as grown up as that. I, well, I came, I I, I stumbled upon it. Um, it's a website, but it was one of those things. You know, when sometimes you're watching a YouTube video or, or you see something, and then you go down this rabbit hole, and then before you know it, you're watching a video of a guy who is trying to sell a wedding dress to men in the middle of a shopping precinct. And I thought, well, fair play. To you fair play to him so he's carrying this wedding dress around and he's going excuse me sir would you like to buy a wedding dress no oh okay it's 100 100 pounds no 80 pounds no no oh excuse me sir would you like to buy a wedding dress you look like the sort of person who'd like to buy a wedding dress and I thought just It do- sounds weird it was weird and that's that's kind of why I carried on watching anyway uh, and 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 he was actually doing it and they weren't Primed, um, so he was exposing himself to you know ridicule or perhaps a punch on the nose. I don't know, especially if he'd pick somebody who perhaps just <laughs> had a row with their wife or was getting divorced. <laughs> anyway, it he um, was a guy who runs something called Einstein Marketer, and if you look up Einstein Marketer, then there are lots of videos um, and and talks about uh, what they do and how they help people. Uh, market their businesses. So there's some really... He's coming at it from quite an interesting angle and, you know, a bit more um, quirky. But on the back of that, you can subscribe to their newsletter. If you want to find out more, you can opt in. Um, But he was giving away, and I do like a giveaway, um, he was giving away a book about the ultimate, it's the ultimate guide to Facebook audiences for 2019. Um, And it's for advertisers, marketers and businesses. So I thought I'll have myself some of that and see if it's any good. Um, Because we all use Facebook, but most of us aren't using it to its full potential or to, or to the best benefit for ourselves or for our audience. So you can download this PDF. Uh, it's a it's a 60-page book. It's easily laid out. It makes sense. Yeah, okay, you need to work through it. Um, but the reason that I'm mentioning it is not only is it good discipline but he talks about you know video and what you should and shouldn't do and we're all being told that video is a really important part of our marketing strategy so um so i will put a link to the uh einstein marketer and to trace's uh discovery along with all of the other things that we've discussed so far on the show on our website which is
0: thebusiness.community this week on the business community, we're profiling a gentleman called Julian Mark Dunkton, a British businessman and co-founder of the fashion label Super Dry. But to leave it there would seem like I'm underselling his actual entrepreneurship. Because yes. it, there's more to him than super dry. Yeah. Um and I didn't know this. I, I'm not a cider drinker. <laughs> I, th- I think that's I better. am. <laughs> 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 isn't there, Heather? Um, so you instantly recognise that he's from the Dunkton family which make organic cider. Yes
1: because I'm from Herefordshire so oh, and that they explains it. were They're Herefordshire. Herefordshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So his father Ivor and stepmother Susie founded and ran Dunkton's organic cider. This guy's fascinating I, I'm really glad that you uh, suggested him Heather. Um, I found out um, far more about him than Um, I I thought I would do in such a short space of time. um, By reading relatively few and listening to one huge podcast, where did you start with your research?
1: Well, I started with the Superdry story because I thought that that in itself would be an interesting story. Um, And then I knew, well, I thought I knew that he was from, or that he had set up in Oswestry, but then it Then I remembered that it wasn't Oxford Street; it was Cheltenham, because you know when you have a conversation with somebody and you go, "Oh, he's from here," and I'm like, "What? Really? Oh my gosh!" So yeah, from Cheltenham. Um, Totally believe them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I (laughs) totally. Well, they said I thought they said Oxford Street anyway. So I thought, well, Superdry is such a massive, massive brand. and it's grown from like nothing. My brother used to wear super dryer. and I used to think, "What's that?" And now it's everywhere. Um, so Which I thought,
0: apparently, it was- in one of the articles I read, is is one of its failings, according to one commentator, is that now the teenagers don't want to be buying the label that their parents. Yeah. Right.
1: Wearing. Yes. Okay. I don't
0: think that's true, but I can sort of get that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, but but that's interesting, isn't it? Because I noticed that, um, barber. Lots of youngsters want to wear barber now, whereas to me, barber is old wax jackets and, you know, hunting, shooting, fishing. But um, anyway, I digress. So, yeah, so I started looking at the Superdry thing. And then I think you and I had a conversation via Messenger about, is this the guy from the side? Because there's two guys who set up Superdry. And it's like, "Uh, yeah, oh, right. okay. So then we end up going down this whole other rabbit hole about all the other things that he's done.
0: Yes. So he set up his first business at the age of 19. And in the podcast that I listened to, it was um, a podcast by Rob Moore. It's called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Um, It's just over an hour long again. So it was a bit of a commitment, but a really interesting insight to him. And he said how lucky he was to find something that he was interested in and good at at 19.
1: Yeah. And for it not to have changed as he got older. Yeah. yeah and it, that's one thing
0: what what's not changed is he he still sees himself as being interested in retail mm. so that's a massive field it's mm-hmm. not so narrow it's it's retail but also he he's got uh, investments in um hotels and restaurants and bars which he sees as very similar to retail because you yeah. you're, sort of, you're dealing with the customer and customer service at the front line there so he had um he was talking in this um podcast about how he set up his first shop supported by the enterprise allowance scheme now you'll have to be of a certain age to remember this you had to be on the dole
1: yeah for a Ooh, 13 three, weeks yeah, or something three yeah three months something yeah like, yeah that yeah, long yeah. Time you
0: had to be on the dole and then you could sign up and get this enterprise allowance scheme which i think was 40 pounds a month now, he said this was brilliant for him because having that £40 a month and it meant that he could live off that £40 a month. But anything that the business made, he reinvested. And he made £16,000 in the first year. And what I thought was really interesting, he um, compared that to what a student would get as a grant to go to university. And about that time, it was £2,000. Right. OK. So yeah. But. Also, all of this stuff that's coming out about you could see is the way that he thinks. He's, he strongly believes that you should understand the numbers. You, you could have a brilliant product and you should have a brilliant product, but you really need to understand the numbers. And also, he only spends 10% of what he earns because he's terrified of losing it all. Oh. And so he said that, you know, in those early years, he would just keep it and reinvest it. So he sell a business, he'd use it and, and reinvest that money. Because he said he had nothing to fall back on.
1: I, I mean, that is that is really interesting. However, like we often say on this show, if you earn an awful lot of money, then it's easy to live off 10% of it. True. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you don't.
0: But fair mm, dues to, 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 to sort of create what became Super Dry, it wasn't Super Dry they set up mm-hmm. initially, but... Now, that concept that grew from um, that first shop from an enterprise allowance scheme. That, that boy's done good.
1: <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely. Definitely. In fact, so much so that he was able to buy the family cider business, which he has now relocated from Herefordshire to um, Cheltenham, to Gloucestershire. I mean, he loves Cheltenham. Yeah, which is wh- where he lives. Um, and on the face of it, you could say that he lives quite a charmed life because everything seems to have fallen into place. But of course, none of that will have happened without hard work. But what I was interested to see was from a workplace point of view. So Superdry, um, such as it is, uh, their website has is a really interesting website. There's a, I wanted to know what Superdry was like to work for and to see what I could find out. Uh, so I, I Googled that and found lots of really positive comments. Now, some of those would be from people who just happen to work in a super dry um, franchise, concession within a larger store. Um, some people who actually work in a super dry outlet and people who work within the organisation, you know, perhaps on a more administrative or or um, logistical... Uh, um, logistical scale sorry lost my words there um but it seems to be that it's a good it's a good company to work for and his values seem to um have been embedded and remain so people talk very favorably about the organization so their website it posts financial information it posts obviously their jobs talks a lot about the passion that's inside the business and the passion and the 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 values seem to have come from the staff as well it's not just he's imposed it on the staff yeah it's it's evolved into taking ownership i think
0: he he talks a lot about partnerships and collaborations he mentions right. it a lot of times and when he was asked what the best career moment was in his life he was saying when james that's james holder the co-founder yeah. of super dry said he would come and work for him he said that's the best moment in his career which i think says a lot he also says he believes in equal partnerships and what he gets pleasure from and what he thinks is is the best is doing something creatively together so with with that as your initial Outlook, you would imagine that the employee experience, you know, sort of the trickle down from the top from that type of culture is going to be good. Um, The the other thing I I picked up on, I don't know if you saw this, he owns a private jet. Yeah. uh, He described as a tool rather than an indulgence. So so when I first saw that, you go, Oh, really? A tool? But actually, I got an insight from this from the podcast because he talks about how we got his ideas how he gets his ideas how he stays fresh and you know like the initial ideas with super dry that was from his travels and so he he believes that it's important for him to look outwards to the world and he, he reads a lot he listens to um, a lot of news and he, he, he likes to travel he says doing the research and keeping abreast of what's going on in the world is is like key to him and hence i could sort of see why having a private jet becomes a tool rather than an indulgence he has yeah. to know what's going on on the streets of japan that's what inspired him with super dry yeah. so much so that a lot of people thought super dry was a japanese brand
1: yes and that and i have to admit i don't really get the connection between japan and super dry but that's i don't look at the brand and think oh that's very japanesey i don't but presumably you haven't walked the streets of tokyo well, I have. Have you? I have. But anyway, that's by the by. Maybe you're not the but target market. I'm, I don't think I am. I genuinely don't think I am. The um, moving on from the super dry thing, the thing that really caught my eye is something called the Lucky Onion. Oh, did you see the boutique hotel in uh, Cheltenham? Yes, I did. <laughs>
0: number
1: 131 one. yes yep. yes yeah so <laughs> the lucky onion is a family of boutique hotels and elegant country pubs in the heart of the Cotswolds straight away you're thinking roaring fires and comfy beds and lovely bed linen and great food and um and that's basically what they aim to deliver uh they the interior he's married to a, a fashion designer um and the interiors just look amazing everything looks fantastic and of course it serves Dunkerton's organic cider in each of the outlets um but it, it I, w- I just wanted to see okay has he just bought a couple of pubs and but no no as you might imagine this guy is doing it properly and everything is top-notch but the prices aren't a horrendously high you know I thought oh here we go it's going to be mega mega expensive and I can't remember what they call the rooms but I think they they I think they call it a good room um a, a, a you know a very good room a fantastic room you know they literally I'm sensing a business trip coming on Heather. I know just to go and check it out and then I wondered can you just eat there and yes you can so there are several there's there's a couple in the offing um and there's um the the flagship one in in Cheltenham
0: well, we've run out of time. I've got more to say, but <gasps> hey, let's finish with a quote, shall we? Um, the one I've got is um, he was talking about how um, the key to to being an entrepreneur is is looking for gaps in the market. Yep. And he said, find out what you're interested in and look for gaps in places where the thing that you're interested in isn't being provided. And he said, the chances of inventing something is pretty slim chances of bringing something to somewhere where it isn't are quite high and attainable for any budding entrepreneur. For example, if you're interested in pizza and you like making pizza and eating pizza, but they don't have a pizza restaurant in your town, there's a gap in the market. What have you got, Heather?
1: Well, I found an interview, so it's really hard to find a particular quote. Um, So I'll probably just flag up the fact that there's an there's a fantastic interview in the FT. Um, so you start to get a sense of who the man is. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. So do join us next week for the business community. You've been listening to the Business Community with me, Heather Noble,
0: and me, Tracy Jones.
1: Join us next week for more news, views, and reviews from the world of business.